0: caring for people who have survived trauma on today's Hear Me Now podcast.
1: Every day we wake up with a little stress and depression.
0: When Kabul fell to the Taliban in late August, 2021, the U.S. and coalition partners evacuated more than 120,000 people from the Hamid Karzai International Airport. It was the largest non-combatant evacuation mission in U.S. military history and yet more than 300,000 Afghan civilians who worked for the U.S. remain behind, at risk for Taliban retaliation and hoping that refugee status will take them to safety. Tens of thousands of Afghans have already been resettled throughout the United States. On today's program, how can clinicians best help survivors achieve full health as trauma-informed care is our focus? I'm Sean Collins. Stay with us. Jackie Leiden is a writer and former host and correspondent for NPR News, who first went to Kabul just as the Taliban left a generation ago. She taught journalism for an American NGO in Afghanistan and has maintained ties with Afghan friends and colleagues. She joins me now from Wisconsin. Jackie, it's so good of you to be with us.
2: I am delighted to be with you, Sean. It's wonderful to be connected again.
0: So... Tell me what you're hearing from from people in Afghanistan.
2: You know, I had, um, well, this may sound almost too anecdotal, but I had dinner just the other night with a longtime friend who who has worked on and off for NPR, I think, um, well, his name is Shafi Sharifi, and he had just left. Now, he didn't have to escape per se. I mean, he wasn't on the last playing out, but he was on the very last commercial flight out. And uh, he also had a large family that he had to extricate. And my friend, uh, NPR's uh, Renee Montaigne, who we were all having dinner together, were hanging on every word because you can hear these things. And when you hear, we didn't know if we should go or stay. I didn't know where my brother was. So-and-so was in the safe house. We used to have, we called it Freedom House 3.0. It was where even people from the diplomats would come and, and sort of hang with us. We had the best Wi-Fi, we had every connection in the world. They felt like um, not only an island, they a beacon, because they didn't feel isolated. They felt they were in the vanguard. And for example, Shafi's sister, who's a doctor, did not want to leave because she served the women whose husbands had been killed by the Taliban in the North in the fighting that's taken place just this year, since um, last year, starting last year, with the Trump drawdown. And, There was a split in that family. The husband then said, well, I'm Shiite, I'm not going to stay for these people. Um, The female doctor wife said, well, I'm, he said, I'm leaving. She said, I'm staying. She goes to her office. She's beaten by the Taliban en route and that's enough for her, you know, so she too will leave. So these kinds of stories, you know, uh, showing up at the airport, being able to book a commercial flight, but having to pay an extra $5,000 on the spot, um our friend made it to, uh, well, he, he's now in New York, but he all he wants to do is go back, and he's intending to go to uh, Georgia uh, as soon as he possibly can and establish uh, in Tbilisi. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, a phrase you heard a lot in the last month is a 20-year war. Uh, the White House used that phrase. The American press picked it up and used it to describe what ended last month. but before the Americans were there, the Soviets were there, and the people of Afghanistan had been living with war trauma for close to 50 years.
2: That is true, and I think that's why this withdrawal feels so very, very bitter. My friend was very, very angry and bitter and very much by the Biden administration, even as we pointed out, but they have done, you know, We have done all these things in the country, wouldn't have had Freedom House 3.0, but, you know, for this presence, there's no ameliorating some of the traumatic feelings around this sudden collapse. This is a collapse. And that's we've all gone through something, nothing like the Afghans. When I first got there in 2001, people were telling me stories of their only word for it really is savagery. And this was not just the Taliban on the other population. This was various warlords fighting other warlords um, kind of reminded me of our own Irish history. One of my Irish historian friends, and go there a lot, as you know, said. And when we weren't fighting the English, you know, we were fighting each other. And right. so, and yeah. and and there was there was that. There was the Russian invasion. When I taught journalism, one of my Hazara students, the Hazara, uh, Asiatic population, tends to live in Central Afghanistan, around where we think of the Bamiyan in Bamiyan, around where the Buddhas once were. They had to flee the Russians. Mm. Um, so. Stability has been fleeting in the latter half of the 20th century.
0: So the, the way that gets lived out though is not just pages on a history book, it's, it's the stories that families tell about how nothing can be certain because it could change the next day, or you know, who do you trust, or where can you go, or where can you be together. All of those sorts of things that we take for granted as being part of the way human beings live with one another.
2: So many Afghans have either large families or they're part of extended families. And that's one of the ways people have gotten through this. Um, obviously, there's an urban rural divide that makes ours look like nothing. You know, for some people, life didn't change so very much the last 20 years. You mentioned this 20 year long war. I don't wanna get too much into military analysis, but a phrase I think Elliot Ackerman, the writer used, he's also a former Marine, was 20 years of successive year long wars with the strategy ever changing. Be that as it may, in terms of military policy, and we're talking in a holistic way about the human person, I think what we had provided in that 20 year window was an increasing amount of hope. Hope mm. and a sense that there was a future. Um, if you look, as anyone listening to this podcast can, at Instagram or TikTok, you will find dozens of young Afghan women who are still there, still posting, uh, still determined, I'm looking here. Uh, to are Fatima Hosseini, H-O-S-S-A-I-N-I, Roya Haideri, H-Y-D-E-R-I. I mean, these people are so sophisticated so digitally literate and so forward thinking that you wonder if we, if we have rent the fabric, what happens to, to them? Because I have seen people come here and it takes 15, another generation to put it together. Right. Or they never really do, but the kids do. That's just a telescoping situation. Now.
0: You and I worked with a really talented director at NPR, Marika Partridge, whose parents, in the 1960s, packed the kids into a Range Rover and drove from Calais to Morocco, um, including a trek through Afghanistan. And Marika describes this modern city of Kabul teeming with stylishly dressed women. If you Google Kabul or Afghanistan 1960s, you see all of these photographs from magazines of this cosmopolitan existence that looks just like milan or paris and that all ended with the blink of an eye in 1978
2: well it did and as it did in neighboring iran actually with the iranian um fall of the shah uh in 1979 so and the the that is i think one thing to keep in mind is that while we have had much political um, divisiveness and turmoil, that kind of seismic overnight shifting isn't really something we have had. But people in Afghanistan can say, well, my father's generation, my mother's generation and know intimately how easy or difficult it was for them. You mentioned Marika's trip. I've heard from a couple of writer friends, um, oh gosh, you know, uh, Kabul. I was there in you know, 1978 and I rode my motorcycle from Z. and I have a Pakistani artist girlfriend who, you know, that's where she'd go from Islamabad to hang out and have a little more freedom. I myself did the story, uh, a story for NPR, the very first um, actor's play in the ruins of a theater that they had had in Kabul, you know, things that we don't think about. I think one thing that we can do now is support in any way possible, either people who have come here or follow some of these people um, on Instagram or Twitter. And I do think social media in, in for all of its perniciousness in some areas, you can't really stuff that spirit back in the bottle. And. That seems to me to be, and many Afghans, like my friend Shafi, who I mentioned earlier, want to go back and get as close as possible so they can be a listening post and over the border resource, uh, have influence. There is a sense now that this is a country worth fighting for. And mm. I hope that won't dissolve.
0: Jackie Leiden, longtime host and correspondent for NPR News and uh, a writer, charming writer. You'll find a link to our website on ours, hearmenowpodcast.org. Jackie, thanks.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Tens of thousands of Afghans have arrived in the US in the past few weeks. We want to talk about how clinicians might be aware of these people's stories when they are seen by providers. So we're pleased to introduce to you two experts to talk through some of the issues to pay attention to. Heidi Miller is a physician in St. Louis, Missouri, and medical director of the St. Louis Regional Health Commission. Dr. Miller is a consultant with Alive and Well Communities, a nonprofit promoting equity-centered trauma-informed care in the Midwest. I should also say that Dr. Miller is my primary care physician, and that's how we met and how I became aware of her work. Heidi Miller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Also with us is Professor Hiyojin Im, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. She's the principal author of a paper just published in the journal Psychological Studies that looks at a multi-tier model of refugee mental health and psychosocial support. Hyojin Im, so good to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Dr. Miller, let's start with an operational definition of trauma-informed care. When when you're training providers, what do you say the essential element is? How how is trauma-informed care different from other care?
3: The premise of trauma-informed care is to assume that the patient is the expert of their own experience and that their experience whether or not it includes trauma, very much informs their um, well-being and their health. So when I went to medical school 20 years ago, um, I and many of my medical student colleagues would work arduously to learn every question to ask patients about what's wrong with you. Like with, you have chest pain, what's wrong with you? Um, what did you eat before you had chest pain that caused the chest pain? What, what do you do wrong with your exercise regimen? What, what, what's wrong with your skin? Tell me everything that's wrong with your skin. We, we work really hard to learn thousands of questions along the lines of what is wrong with you. Trauma-informed care innovates and uplifts that limited line of questioning to what happened to you, not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you? And that may include the concept of traumatic experiences, unmitigating stress, and there's good data to support that patient's experiences directly impact their health and well-being.
0: Professor M., you write that previous research on refugee mental health has concentrated on the clinical treatment of mental disorders related to pre-migration trauma often ignoring the traumas associated with the migration itself and with the traumas associated with resettlement and finding yourself in a new place and finding yourself without support, your life turned upside down. Talk to us a little bit about that distinction between a focus on pre-migration trauma versus current uh, experience.
1: So, um, as Sean, you mentioned, um, so the mental health treatment for refugees or mental health care in general for the refugee population have been heavily focusing on clinical interventions. So that when people are thinking about the refugee trauma, that is tremendous and cumulative. And people really understand that negative consequences of trauma on their body, mind, behaviors, and relationships. So I think that it makes sense for people kind of started focusing on that piece first, but uh, during resettlement process uh, and even acculturation you know the, in the long term people really face lots of challenges that people kind of feel like they lost uh, a means of coping uh, or means of kind of a, you know resilience or functioning because the trauma uh from a you know a social suffering pers- a perspective it's it's not really about individual. You know the misfortune or individual, you know misery. It, it's more collective suffering, collective events that affect the entire community, uh, entire society. But a lot of refugees are survivors by definition, right? Survivors of persecution. Um, they really kind of survive those, you know the. the the tragic, you know, moments a lot, but when they uh, face all the challenges, including, you know, discrimination, social marginalization, poverty, racism, all those kinds of structural barriers in the United States, they kind of feel like this is the first kind of First type of uh, you know trauma that they experience, they kind of feel oftentimes very helpless. So I think that a lot of times um, the medical you know treatment um, cannot really touch that piece uh, of the suffering. Uh, I think that that's why we need to really uh, look at. The what's beyond the clinical interventions, uh, what we can do uh, by building more like a community that is informed by refugee experiences and refugee culture, so that we can provide something more safe and something um, you know more kind of the um, set of promoting uh, their resilience.
0: I want us to talk about what that could look like, but but before we do, Heidi Miller, you see patients who come from, I know, Somalia and from Bosnia, among other places, <clears throat> is what Professor M is describing. Is that what you see in in your patient population?
3: Yeah. So St. Louis was a settlement site for Somali and Bo- Bosnian refugees, and I work at a federally qualified health center, and we really opened our doors to our refugee patients. and. Our patients have experienced um, unspeakable trauma. And we have seen that manifesting in um, behavioral health and physical health manifestations. So it's incredibly important. We need to do this for all of our patients to have a holistic, whole person uh, approach to taking care of them. But um, it is more important than ever for our refugee population. Understand that mental health, that physical health, but also that community health that becomes a really key element. And over the years, we have been lucky enough to acquire um, Somali and Bosnian uh, gifted uh, employees. And the fact that our staff represent that refugee population, they're incredibly important in guiding that patient toward a healthier state.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think you could never overvalue the effect of seeing a smile at the registration desk when you walk in the door from somebody who's dressed like you're dressed or speaks the language that you speak uh, it's it's amazingly important and i can see that as a as a non-migrant uh, neighbor of of the clinic so can we talk a little bit about what the social structures could be that would make life for newcomers, especially refugees from trauma, survivors of war trauma or other traumas, what could make that easier um, for them in our communities?
1: The first thing they perhaps face is uh you know the cultural differences or language kind of barriers um that we always say that but i think the meaning of that is really profounding so the it really affects every corner of their experiences imagine you yourself uh being in a foreign country where you cannot speak a language and you don't have anything with you even uh you 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 don't know somehow their technology how to use their technology and you don't know how to read signs or even take a bus or anything. So I think the refugees uh, start from scratch. Um, and then services that they, uh, you know, the first experience is uh, uh, we call RMP, the Reception and Placement uh, Program, which is a resettlement uh, uh, kind of the programs like ESL, uh, cultural orientation, um, you know, the employment special kind of, you know, uh, sort of the services and so on. Um, But those have a very short uh, time window, like uh, 30 days to up to 90 days usually. Um, Imagine yourself kind of being self-sufficient within that time window. I think that it's almost, you know, to some people, it's almost impossible mission uh, to complete.
0: Dr. Miller, uh, Professor M mentions the sort of paramount importance of language. And um, tell me about what it's like to practice Uh, medicine using an interpreter to bridge the language gap.
3: Yeah, I have to echo Professor M's note on cultural and language barriers, because they are immense. And um, the striking thing when I started my career is that the language interpretation is only part of the clinical encounter, but the cultural interpretation is key. It's incredible. So some of our most gifted interpreters, and I really do think that our interpreters helping refugee populations are these quiet heroes and fierce advocates. So they are bound to interpret exactly word by word what the patient says and then what the doctor says. And yet the most gifted interpreters will help educate everyone in the room about culture. It's incredible. So in the we have this incredible uh, Somali interpreter. She actually speaks five languages, but in the middle of a visit where we are managing congestive heart failure and diabetes and, and low thyroid and new headaches, she will interpret the language and she will simultaneously educate me, educate the patient and educate the patient's family member. She'll be telling me, Dr. Miller, Dr. Miller, you cannot ask her to do that during Ramadan. Don't you know when Ramadan is? And we actually have the Ramadan dates on our wall calendars so that we are not asking patients to do things that are inappropriate during Ramadan. In the mi- meantime, while we're talking to the patient and the patient is so nervous picking up their brand new cell phone that's ringing, she'll educate the patient like, don't pick up the phone now. The voicemail will pick it up. This is you. Only, in America, you only get 15 minutes with the doctor. Don't waste a minute. And then we'll be talking about the diabetes, new insulin dose. And she will immediately look to the son in the room and say, you need to go to Walgreens and you need to give them your mother's name. You need to pick that up today. Not tomorrow, not the next day. And if they don't have it ready or if it's too expensive, then you call the doctor's office. She's incredible.
0: She sounds like your grandmother.
3: She is. And um, I think um, really respecting this role of the interpreter, lifting it up, valuing it, reimbursing it, it is the difference between a patient getting from point A to point B. Um, I'll give you another quick example. So I had an elderly Somali lady um, who had never had a mammogram, and um, I asked if she wanted a mammogram. Um, the interpreter took me out of the room after that visit. She goes, Dr. Miller, you need to know that in, in our culture, cancer is a curse, and you cannot just you cannot just ask that question. And she explained to me how to ask it. And and the next time I asked a patient if she wanted a mammogram, I, I looked at the interpreter and I, I said, I said what I'm supposed to say, I said, um, would you like a mammogram? And the interpreter turned to the patient and she spoke to the patient for like three straight minutes. And I sat there silently and I heard them go back and forth, back and forth. And then she turned around and she said, Yes, Dr. Miller, she would like a mirror, and that kind of like there are standards of interpretation that like you're supposed to interpret so directly, and yet that does a disservice to a patient if we were if we are blind to their um, uh, cultural context.
0: The posture that a clinician puts herself in, being open, listening, creating a place where she hopes trauma can be shared openly and Um, without stigma, but probably not cured. Is that a roadblock for other clinicians adopting this sort of standards of trauma-informed care? I mean, do people come to it thinking, well, we can't really change some of the things that are at the root of our patients' lives, so why are we even going to bring it up? Like, we can't fix it. Uh, Why bring it up?
3: So in medicine, we go through our training and we love those acute problems that are curable. So your gallbladder is inflamed and if it bursts, your life could be at risk. We can make the diagnosis. We can do an emergency surgery. We can cure it. We can sew you up, send you home. You're totally fine. You never have a problem with the gallbladder anymore because you don't have one anymore. However, the majority of what we do in healthcare is management of chronic conditions. So in the same way that we can't cure diabetes, it is a lifelong um, uh, concern. We also need to understand that trauma and um, behavioral health responses and physical responses to that may be a may have chronicity to it, However, we can support the patient and manage them so that their overall health, both physical and mental can be uplifted. Now, the other thing that we run into with our healthcare practitioners is that many will say, well, this is not my expertise. This is beyond my pay grade. I'm I'm not gonna ask this question because I don't know what to do with the answer. And the solution to that is integrated team-based care, which is the most progressive model of care that everyone should be practicing. So I have the courage and I have practice asking these questions of what happened to you, to my patients, because it directly impacts how their diabetes is um, among other health conditions. But also I can do a warm handoff and help that patient connect with either a behavioral health expert, like a social worker or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, or a community health worker who can help them within their community. So I am nothing without my team. And so if a doctor or a provider chooses to silo themselves and perpetuate an old fashioned hierarchy of doctor knows best, and I'm not gonna ask anyone else for help, we're gonna run into trouble. But if the doctor is embedded in a democratized team, and respects the expertise, the equal expertise, equal intensity, just different types. If we respect the expertise of everyone on the team, then we can deploy whoever's best at what that patient needs.
0: Hmm. Professor Am, is that the multi-tiered approach that you envision?
3: Yeah, Dr. Miller actually explained
1: it beautifully uh, about the the partnership. Um, so first of all, multi-tier approach is basically the idea that, um, you know, we should uh, build a care system that provide, provide a multiple kind of the um, sort of the uh, services uh, at the same time to meet a various needs of the community members. We try to uh, build a partnership and capacity building all together with these uh, three different communities, uh, refugee resettlement agency, mental health professionals, and the refugee community leaders all together. So uh, that's basically the the core idea of multi-tier intervention model that we applied uh, in Virginia in different places.
3: I want to make a comment um, in response to Professor Im's note about cultural humility. It's a really Mm -hmm. um, poignant term, and it calls out the need to really recognize and address um, transparently the opposite of that, which is racism and xenophobia and bias, both in explicit and implicit forms. And so it's really important for the organization I'm working with, Alive and Well Communities, that the trauma-informed care has to be equity-centered and that we have to be very forthcoming with that um, so that we can really do justice to um, our refugee patients.
0: Hmm. I've mentioned to you in the past that the Providence Institute for Human Caring has a sort of motto of um, whole persons, caring for whole persons. And it it helps to remind me that we're not just talking about the identified patient or their family or their community, we're also talking about caregivers. And um, I I suppose I wanna ask um, trauma-informed care puts caregivers in a position of having to absorb, stories that are traumatic. And I'm I'm curious about self-care and how do you absorb those stories and, and continue to be a healer?
3: It's a powerful question. Um, so any training that we do for equity-centered, tra- equity-centered trauma-informed care starts with the caregivers. And we learned this lesson very, very early that Um, Many of our staff members um, uh, and providers, clinicians, front desk staff who are caring for vulnerable populations have histories of trauma and vulnerabilities themselves. And if you skip over them and only prioritize the patient, um, then you are missing a massive healing opportunity for your staff, but that healing translates over to your patient population. So we front load teaching and care um, regarding trauma for our staff first. And so the basic tenets or principles of trauma-informed care are trustworthiness, empowerment, choice, safety, collaboration, and equity. And so we start taking care of our own staff in that manner first, and we do extensive training. And then we start to think about, okay, how do we deliver this type of care
0: to our patient population. Hmm. You know, um, because of the focus in this hour on Afghanistan and the people being evacuated from Afghanistan, um, we've been talking about war trauma in particular, but I I guess I want to say that, you know, all of us have just sort of come through or in the middle of Um, a global pandemic, um, economic pressures that prey on people and worries. And I I think I want to say that it's kind of a miracle that anyone ever makes it into a doctor's appointment on their own uh, steam, that everyone is dealing with some sort of stressor that could make it just as easy for them to say, you know what, I'm I'm not going to go in to see the doctor. I'm just going to push through this. And the same is true for the providers. The fact that anyone comes to work uh, at the clinic is kind of a miracle. It shows an enormous amount of trust in one another. I guess that's what I want to say.
3: I would echo the difficulty of this time for everyone. Um, and yet I've seen that we so crave human connection um, that I think that has helped to draw clinicians and patients together in the, in the within the health center walls there is um, a high volume of loneliness right now. And I had a, an elderly patient with um, COPD, difficulty breathing, high risk for falling. She fit every criteria of this should be a telehealth visit. Don't, don't have her schlep into the clinic. And we did a few telehealth visits, but you know I had to see her in person every once in a while. And as we were discussing, Um, whether her next visit would be telehealth or in-person, she just looked at me longingly and she said, Dr. Miller, I just want to come in. She was living in a basement unit. She had followed every rule of social isolation and physical distancing, and this was her first outing. Um, And it actually reminds me, and I'll (laughs) I'll share this just briefly, Um, as I was starting to see patients sort of trickle in after the initial onslaught of the pandemic. I had one patient who came in and she was dressed so beautifully. She had a leopard shirt and a leopard fur and leopard pattern pants and shoes, socks and earrings and a headband to match. And her makeup was beautiful. She looked like a movie star. And I sat back and I said, you just look so beautiful. And she looked at me, she said, Dr. Miller, this is the first time I have been out of the house to see someone in four months. I loved it, I loved it. It was just this human connection.
0: Heidi Miller is medical director of the St. Louis Regional Health Commission. Dr. Miller is a consultant with Alive and Well Communities, a nonprofit promoting equity-centered, trauma-informed care in the Midwest. Hyojin Im is an associate professor in the School of Social Work at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. Her paper that looks at a multi-tier model of refugee mental health and psychosocial support is published in Psychological Services. Earlier we heard from Jackie Leiden, writer and radio correspondent for NPR News. You can find links to all of our guests on our website at hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter at human underscore caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bhakta, Sarah Viscusso, Amanda Schwartz, Catherine Gibbs, and Heather Martin. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.